When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, I'm Paul Stevenson and this is episode 74 of Vintage Rock Pod, the ultimate classic rock podcast with a big name interview show every Monday, like this one, and short four or five minute daily episodes released Tuesday through Sunday on a show that I call This Day Rocks. If this is your first time listening, then please find Vintage Rock Pod on your podcast app or your player of choice and subscribe directly on there so you don't miss a single episode. As I said, one comes out every single day and you can only get all those episodes on the Vintage Rock Pod feed. So give it a little like or subscribe separately on there, please. On to today's guest then, and he was a founding member of a band that just absolutely blew up in the mid-70s. In fact, their debut album became the biggest selling debut album of all time at that point, with now total sales of over 17 million, and earning them a Grammy nomination for Best New Artist as well. The group's total sales as a band worldwide currently sits around 75 million. I am, of course, talking about Boston, and my guest is the guitarist Barry Goodrow. Now, a very quick request before we hear from Barry, though. If you haven't done so already, please check out Vintage Rock Pod on YouTube. Have a look at the channel on there. Starting to get a bit more serious on there these days. You can see some of the great interviews that I've done from across the series. Plenty and plenty of guests on there. Some bits that we don't hear on the podcast, too. Plus, there's a new community tab on there, and I post a fun poll on there every single day. That's starting to get a lot of chat and discussion going as well, so it's well worth checking out. Just search for Vintage Rock Pod on YouTube, Press subscribe, it's absolutely free of course, and you can watch the videos and join in the polls and that kind of thing. But back to Barry Goodrow then. As I said, he was one of the founding members of the band. The origins of the group goes back to the 60s. As much as the group blew up, it took them a while to actually get that break. Now that first lineup was Barry, Tom Schultz of course, Fran Sheehan, Seb Hashian and lead singer Brad Delp. Barry remained with the band for those meteoric first two albums before being ousted from the band due to a misunderstanding, really. So I talked to him about those early days, the crazy impact of the debut album, some of the tours they did, which included travelling with Black Sabbath, the circumstances surrounding his leaving the band, his later work with his good friend Brad Delp, and his current project too. It's a great interview. And to make it better... He was sat overlooking the lake at his lakeside chalet. Very nice indeed. I was very, very jealous. So anyway, here's my chat with former Boston guitarist Barry Goodrow. Barry, I mean, music's always been a big part of your life, hasn't it? And your, your first guitar I read somewhere was a, was it a white 1962 Fender Stratocaster. I mean, first question, do you still have it? And second question, can you remember that feeling when you first saw it? It's, it's special, isn't it? 
Well, you know, I started uh, playing when I was uh, 11, and I wanted to play guitar for a while, but my parents were sort of holding me off. So eventually we borrowed my babysitter's acoustic guitar, and I started taking lessons, and, uh, you know, obviously were serious about it. So they brought me my first guitar, which was a used 62-byte Stratocaster. Of course, one of the first records I ever bought was uh, the Beach Boys, and of course, all the pictures you saw of the Beach Boys, they were, you know, playing those white Stratocasters, so I, I was just in heaven. But unfortunately, I traded it in on something else, and I, I no longer have that guitar, oh, so I, I learned a, a valuable lesson there, and I haven't really uh, sold any since then. <laughs> <laughs> Hold on to them indeed. Now, music was always a love, as you said there, right from the very beginning, from 11 years old, and you were playing in bands when you were younger, and you actually met Brad Delp, didn't you, when you tried out for his high school band? I mean, what, what was those first memories of Brad, and what did you, what did you think when you first heard him sing, or even all the way back then? Well, you know, I had a, a friend who was the guitar player in, in Brad's band, and he had decided that he uh, was going to leave the band. And he just, he didn't want to leave him straight. He So he said, well, you know, I'm going to bring you to the rehearsal and introduce you to the band and, and tell them that, you know, you should, should be my replacement. So I went and I, I, I auditioned for the band, and we did uh, Communication Breakdown by Led Zeppelin. <laughs> And that's the first time I had met Brad, and he sang that, and he just totally blew me away. I, it was just fantastic. But unfortunately, the band said, well, you know, we don't really want you to leave, and it turns out that he ended up staying in the band, and I, and I didn't get the gig. But I remembered having heard Brad sing, and then later when Tom Scholz and I were you know, in the process of doing demos, uh, we'd get back and touch and uh, obviously things flipped and uh... <laughs> absolutely yeah the rest is history as they say um, so you sadly didn't get that gig in the first high school band but you went on to college you continued to play in bands and then over the next little while musicians started to get together and the band the, the nucleus of the band started to form didn't it and as you mentioned there you, you and Tom were working together how did you first meet Tom? Well you know, I went off to college at uh, Boston University and right across the river from Boston University is uh, MIT. Uh, a guy I had been in a band with in high school uh, was over at MIT. And, you know, both of us were trying to take school seriously. And, you know, we still wanted to play music. So we said, you know, let's get together and we'll just play just for the fun of it. And, you know, we ended up rehearsing in the basement of his uh, fraternity house. And, you know, we'd play fraternity parties and that sort of thing, just, just for, for yucks. So at one point, we decided we wanted to get a keyboard player. And I put an ad in the uh, local newspaper for a keyboard player. And Tom Scholz answered the, the ad. You know, he was a classical trained piano player. And at that point, it was just starting to uh, take up guitar. And he came and, and played with us. And obviously, he had just graduated MIT in five years with a master's degree and was at that point working at Polaroid. So for him, I think he felt really comfortable being back at MIT around, you know, MIT types. And uh, he joined the band. And it wasn't uh, long after that that uh, he started uh, doing some writing. In fact, the piece uh, called Foreplay was one of the first things that he had written and we actually did that right back in the uh, fraternity in those days and uh, 
obviously that uh, stood the test of time. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, indeed. And then, as you said, when when you two are getting everything together, you then invite, invited Brad back in. And and can you can you remember Tom's reaction to hearing Brad's voice for the first time? Well, I, I remember where we uh, we got together for the first time. Uh, a friend of mine had a uh, Sunday afternoon uh, jam session at a, a club on the beach, and uh, you know they had a equipment set up and they had a ham and organ, so. Tom and I went there and we invited Brad to, to come. And we sat in. Tom played the Hammond organ. I played guitar. Brad sang and we did a whipping post by the Almond Brothers. Great song. And honestly, <laughs> it was like flipping a switch. It's like, this is it. You know, this is, this is what's going to work. And uh, right after that, uh, Brad started going over Tom's house to uh, you know, sing on uh, Tom's recordings. Special times. I mean, those days, the the music that was being written by Tom and things like that amongst the band was was coming together, and demos were were being put together. And you had, like many other bands, a lot of rejections and stuff like that from from record companies. But what was the feeling like amongst you at that stage? Because obviously, the strength of the songs was there from the very beginning. Did you did you always have that feeling that it was at some point going to click? Well, we had a lot of confidence in in what we were doing. Um, you know, honestly, I don't think we really had any illusions that we were going to be some enormous band. We, uh, at that point, just wanted to try to get a record contract and, you know, have some semblance of a uh, career in, in, in music. So, you know, it was a long time in the making. We did our first demo uh, in 1969. Wow. Until, until 1975 that the band was, uh, was actually signed. Uh, we did a showcase. Uh, it was essentially just the band and um, the guys who would end up being our manager and a couple of people from the from the record label. But uh, I guess they they heard what they wanted to hear and uh, <laughs> and, and we got we got signed. Everybody heard what they wanted to hear at that point because the now legendary album Boston came out in 1976. The initial hope I read was of maybe shifting maybe a couple of hundred thousand copies, just enough to make sure that you had the deal in place to do a second record. But those sales were surpassed within weeks. They were flying off the shelves. I mean, take me back to that that time when things just went boom for you. Well, you were right. We were hoping to sell 100,000 records because that was kind of the threshold that you'd have to sell in order for the record company to finance another record. So we were just hoping we'd make it to 100,000 records. And more than a feeling had been released to radio before the record came out and was taking off like crazy. So when the record came out, it it really took off in in a really big way. And you know, we sold a million records in the in the first month it was out. But at that point, you know, we hadn't really performed as a band. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, Tom and I and Tom, Brad and I had, had done a few shows around town earlier when we were still doing demos. But, you know, we weren't really a, a live act at that point. <clears throat> so the record label had booked a, uh, a tour of nightclubs in the Midwest of the United States. And we didn't have any infrastructure, so to speak. We didn't have any roadies. We didn't have any equipment. Uh, you know, there was a, 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 an advertisement called the Warren Advertiser that had a section of musical instruments. And we went in there and we went out and bought amplifiers and, and 
guitars and drums, you know, used from the bargain artist guide in order to get the equipment together. And then we started rehearsing, and again, we didn't have any road crew members, so we'd have people hang around in the hallways in the rehearsal space. We said, uh, "Hey, want to be a roadie?" Yeah, okay, okay, you're a roadie, you know. <laughs> so, you know, not only were we really green, but everybody around us was really green as well. So we ended up going to the to the Midwest, and, uh, you know, they had booked us in, in nightclubs. And there were lines all the way around the block at these places. You know, there were way more people that could fit in the lungs, you know, showing up. And that's when... It really started kicking in that, you know, there's something really going on here. And then almost immediately, uh, we got our first tour, which was uh, opening up for Black Sabbath. It seemed like uh, an odd pairing, but, uh, you know, at that point, Black Sabbath, the career was, was, you know, going on the downside. Our career was going up, and they really appreciated us, you know, being on the bill and, and selling tickets, and they treated us super, super great. I mean, the guys are just fantastic. In fact, we stayed in touch with them for years and years after that, uh, right up until fairly recently, really. Oh, brilliant. So what do you remember those days with, with Sabbath? I mean, obviously, you said that the career was coming down slightly from the, the heady days of like the late 60s, early 70s, but were they still as, as crazy as all the stories that, that fly around about them? Honestly, not really. Uh, you know, you hear all the stories about uh, drug use, but I, I didn't see any of that at all, really. Uh, <laughs> I do have one, one funny story. You know, we had a day off, and uh, you know, at that point, if you wanted to watch a movie in the room, you, you phone down to the, to the desk and they put it on your TV. And, uh, and Brad had a, a, a favorite horror movie. So we figured we'd, we'd watch that in the room. And we invited the guys from Black Sabbath to, to watch the movie. So <laughs> we're all sitting in front of the TV and, you know, there all this talk about Black Sabbath and Satan and you know, all this kind of stuff. And, and we're watching the movie and, and Ozzy is, you know, sitting on the floor with a trash can in front of him in case he throws up. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they have the big, uh, you know, crosses around their neck and they're clutching their crosses i'm thinking oh yeah it's satan words yeah right all <laughs> <laughs> an act but uh we we had we had some really good times so uh, you know we were staying in like holiday inns and that sort of thing and you know being down in the bar at the holiday inn with uh with black sabbath was uh, uh quite a quite a experience <laughs> indeed indeed and you, you said you went from nightclubs to supporting black sabbath to pretty much headlining arenas all in the space of just a few months didn't it? i mean it, it was it was incredible yeah the yum came out in august uh we went out on the tour with them probably october through the end of 76 and then the beginning of 77 we were already headlining arenas uh, on our own and we went all through 77 and by the summer of 77 we were even uh, doing some stadium work so it just took off in a, in a really huge way and those first six months ago so it seemed like we were just pedaling as fast as we could to try to keep up with it all you know? i can imagine you know people would say well what, what was it like you sold all those records honestly 
He didn't really have much of a chance to think about it. It, mm. it was just insane. It was the fastest selling debut album at that point, wasn't it, of all time? And then I think it shifted something like 17 million records to this point. It really is. 17 wild. million records, yeah. Absolutely yeah. wild. Absolutely wild. That was when people still bought records. <laughs> yes, the good old days. The good old days indeed. <laughs> now, um, we've got to mention, you, you touched on it yourself there. You said it had come out before the, the record. More Than a Feeling. I mean, it is one of the greatest songs. It did it's a rock staple isn't it it's in the, the rock and roll hall of fame as itself I mean what do you remember of, of the first time you heard that song or what, what was the, the recording sessions for it like I mean take us back to those days well it actually was an amalgam of uh, a couple of different songs uh, uh, the the chorus Tom had before and then he had the the, the, the verse before but in other songs so it actually went through several different forms before it ended up in the in the form that people are, are familiar with. Uh, actually, if you search around enough online, you can find some of those very early uh, versions of it. So not only that song, but a lot of them went through a lot of different versions of it before they ended up the versions that you hear on the, on the record. And of course... Uh, you know, the record companies loved the demo tape, but then when it came time to record their record, they didn't want Tom to be the producer, which made up absolutely no sense at all. So what we did is we had John Boylan come in as a producer, and he and Tom co-produced the record, but Tom went back to the basement and just recorded all the songs over again the same way he'd done them in the first place. And John Boylan was out on the West Coast, and uh, we went out, the band without Tom, to the West Coast and recorded some songs out there, kind of in a ruse to the, the record label that the band was actually doing a recording in California when Tom was still doing it in, in his basement. So, and, you know, they didn't really figure it all out, so it all, all worked out uh, pretty well <laughs> <laughs> pretty well indeed now in terms of the critical acclaim and success that came um, from that first album then I mean the record company as you'd expect were, were wanting a follow up pretty quickly after that weren't they now what was it like within the band at this stage then because obviously the success had been meteoric you didn't really have time to put your feet on the ground or look around or see what was happening I mean when it came to that second album what was what was the pressure like on yourselves and Tom to, to produce something to to stack up to that first record well we we toured right through 1977 and you know we got home from the tour and they were immediately saying well you know when are you going to deliver the next record and you know we hadn't recorded a note of anything uh you know we we did run through some songs you know during sound check and that sort of thing so there was some material in the works, but there was nothing reported to that point. So that's when the, the pressure really started ratcheting up. And, um, you know, for me personally, it was my hope that, uh, you know, Tom would uh, bring the band in more and have the band more, more involved in the writing and recording process. But it actually turned out uh, to be just the opposite. And Tom kind of holed up in, in the studio working by himself and of course the record company was constantly harassing him where's the record where's the record uh, you know and our manager was trying to book a tour because you know that's really where you know the money 
is to be made from the management uh, aspect anyway. So the, the pressure really, really ramped up. And, you know, the second record came out in, in 78, but uh, Tom wasn't really happy with the timing. He didn't think it was up to his standards. He didn't think it was quite ready yet when it, when it came out. So, you know, we went out on, the, on the, the second tour. I remember the first date of the second tour. We hadn't actually played the whole set through even once. Wow. You know, we had we had rehearsals to to rehearse the uh, you know the production and the show and so forth, but we hadn't actually made it through the whole set yet. So you can imagine the the uh, the pressure of that first day. Of course, it was a huge arena; it was sold out, and you know everybody's super excited about the new Boston record. So you know the pressure just ramped up, you know, off the scale at that point. And you know we went out on that second tour and. You know, we toured all the way through 78, uh, pretty much to the end of uh, 79. Uh, the last tour being uh, the tour of Europe, we did the, uh, the autumn of uh, 79. Uh, the album itself, it came out, it sold a million copies in, in something like 10 days. It was ridiculous. Another big seller. Uh, the tour went really well as well. But at that stage after that tour, it was when Tom decided he wanted a break. He wanted a year off, didn't he? And at this stage, he said that you guys can, can do your own thing um, during that year. And that ultimately led to you leaving the group. Now, can you can you talk us through what happened with all that, please? Yeah, like I said, we did our last tour uh, the autumn of 79. We got home around uh, Christmas time. <clears throat> and Tom um, got us together in uh, January and said that he was taking a year off and that if there was something else that we wanted to do to work with another actor or do a solo record, that sort of thing, now was the time. Well, honestly, I hadn't really thought about doing a, a solo record at all. You know, I was always you know, a group player, and I liked being part of the group. So Brad and I started uh, uh, some songwriting. And although I had written a few songs very early on that, that we did some demo stuff, you know, Tom's writing skills just took off big time. So we were happy to have him, you know, handling the writing. So Brad and I started doing some, some uh, songwriting, and after we had several songs together, uh, we brought them to Tom. Obviously, for me, in the hopes that he would say, well, you know, I like this or that, and, you know, I'll consider using that on a, uh, on a boss production. But instead, he said, um, well, you know, if you're going to do a solo record, I'd like to uh, produce it. And, of course, we knew that the record company was, they would not want Tom working on a solo record when they wanted him working on a boss record. So Brad and I continued on um, with, with the writing. And I brought some material to the record label. They were excited about it. And uh, they got John Boylan again uh, involved. And he and I co-produced the record. And I was trying to work within that, that year-long um, time frame. So by the spring, we had the record recorded. And we ended up putting it out in uh, August of uh, 1980. Well, when the advertising started coming out for the record, uh, one of the first major ads was a full-page ad. You know, it's a picture of me playing, and it said, uh, six million people have heard the sound of this guitar. We want to introduce you to him. And I took that as, well, here's the other guy that you don't know about that we want you to take a look at. Well, Tom saw it from the perspective of, 
they were saying, here's the guy behind the Boston Records. And he had a real problem with that, obviously. <laughs> and uh, unfortunately, uh, you know, he went to the company and, uh, and pretty much most of the promotion for the record stopped. And, uh, you know, by the end of 80, the record had pretty much gone away. So then uh, he got us together again in January of uh, 81 at this point and said that, uh, told the band that, you know, I I can't work with Barry anymore. He's, he's, He's gone. And before the meeting was over, Brad announced that he was leaving the band too. He said, well... You know, I know you've, you're going to be starting a third record, and I'll commit to singing on the third record and doing what I need to do to promote it, but I'm out of the band. So essentially, at that point, the band was just three members. But Brad did go on to obviously sing all of the third stage record, and he went out and toured uh, extensively on that. But before the third record, he had completed both uh, Sebastian and Francie and the other yeah. remaining band members uh, left the band. So when Tom went out to uh, promote the third record, it was just uh, he and he and Brad. So how were you feeling at that stage then? I mean, did did you try and put up a fight? Did any of the other band members try and put up a fight? Because obviously the way that Tom took it wasn't the way it was intended. So was there, was there any attempt to try and change his mind? Uh, not really. Not really. Not, honestly, that was... Uh, Kind of disappointing for me that Sib and Fran uh, didn't go to bat for me, but they both felt as though, well, you know, Barry wants to, to do his own thing anyway. Obviously, Brad took it upon himself to leave the band when I went out. Yeah. Uh, other than contractually, I don't think it really changed anything that, that Brad said he left. Uh, <clears throat> although he did leave again, uh, you know, later in the, um, mm-hmm. you know, I had a band in the mid-80s, Orion uh, uh, Hunter, which uh, I was recording and, and, uh, and touring on around the same time Tom had his third stage record. And uh, later in the 80s, I started the band RTZ. And at that point, Brad left Boston to join RTZ, and we did the RTZ break and went out and, and toured on that. So... You know, Brad did go back to Tom and did some more touring after that, but he was never really a full-fledged member of the band at that point. Yeah, yeah. Um, and just just touching on that on that um, solo album of yours, then I mean, there's some great songs on there. Hard Luck, Life Is What You Make It, two of my favourites. There's obviously the single on their Dreams as well. I mean, given the strength of the the album and the record, and how upsetting was it for you? Not just what happened with the band and Tom, but how upsetting was it for you to to see the record almost be just shelved, despite the the strength of it, just because of what happened? Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, it was it was tough. Uh, you know, looking back uh, with with twenty twenty hindsight, mm-hmm. I wouldn't have tried to get the record done in that year long uh, time frame that he that he gave me. You know, I'm proud of the record. I I, I think yeah. it came out really well, but. I think given more time, it, it could have been even better. It, you know, listening back to me, it felt a little rushed. And the production was good, but, um, you know, they're looking back on it. There are a lot of things I, I would have done done differently, but uh, hindsight is twenty twenty. <laughs> Absolutely. 
<laughs> Absolutely. And as you mentioned, you, you, you continue to work with um, and Brad on, on RTZ. Um, and then you, again with uh, Delp and, and Goodrow as well, you made a number of records together. I mean, obviously he was a good friend of yours, brother-in-law as well. I mean, what was it musically in a songwriting partnership? What, what was it that helped you guys work together so well? Well, I think Brad appreciated that I just gave him free reign. You know, normally I would come up with a musical track and I would give him the musical track and he would come up with the melody and the lyrics. From time to time, I would give him some melody ideas and lyric ideas and sometimes he'd use them, sometimes he wouldn't. And if he liked the song, he would go ahead and finish it. If he didn't, he wouldn't. So he had a lot more freedom than he would in, in Boston. You know, he did have songwriting credit in Boston, but it was uh, limited. So it basically gave him free reign, and I, I think uh, he really enjoyed that, that freedom. I think that's why we continue to, to, to work through the years, is he just uh, appreciated having that, that freedom to just uh, do whatever came to him. You know. Absolutely. And then obviously the, the devastating news of his sad passing in 2007. I mean, just talk to me about how wonderful a singer he was and a, a talented musician he was. I mean, in terms of his voice, I mean, where do you rank him among the best? Oh, he's, he's right up there with, with the best of us. Uh, you know, if you were sitting next to Brad and Brad was singing a line, it sounded as though it had already been processed to a bunch of different equipment. His voice was just that special. And, you know, a lot of people know this, but he, he was a huge Beatles fan. And yeah. he had, for years, he had his own Beatles covered with uh, Beetlejuice. <laughs> and he was able to cover all of the Beatles' voice, singing voices. When he sang George Harrison, it sounded like George Harrison. When you sang Paul McCartney, it sounded like Paul McCartney. It's just, it's the, the, the vocal facility he had was just unbelievable. And very rarely sang a bad note. And uh, if he had a night where he was having trouble singing, it was really, really upsetting to him because it was really important that he give it everything he got and that people weren't disappointed in, in any way. Super guy, it's a super guy. Uh, like you mentioned, he he's uh, he was my brother-in-law. You know, our kids grew up together. We spent a lot of time, you know, outside of the band stuff. Uh, you know, with the kids and and that. Uh, just a super guy. We do a show. You know, after the show, Brad would make a point of speaking to everybody that wanted to speak to him, sign and and people wanted to sign, take pictures with him and. You know, we did our RTC tour. There were nights where we wouldn't have to drag them onto the bus to leave because he would just stay there to the very last minute and, and speak to anybody that wanted to speak to him. It, it, it was just that kind of guy. Brilliant. Absolutely and brilliant. It was it's just a, you know, a huge, huge, huge disappointment when he, when he committed suicide. Uh, so that, that, was, uh, that was awful. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, and, and on to today, I mean, you, you're still working hard. You're still out on the road. You're still recording music with your band, uh, Barry Goodrow's Engine Room. Um, your first album came out in 2017, which was Full Steam Ahead. And then last year, the follow-up album, The Road, came out. You, you're still, as I said, you're still on the road. You've still got sh uh, shows and concerts all lined up for this year. I mean, how are you enjoying musical life at the moment? Are you still enjoying being out there and performing and recording and writing and things like that? 
Yeah, I'm having a ball. Uh, you know, this this new band I have, uh, the Engine Room, uh, includes uh, Brian Mace uh, on keyboards and vocals. Uh, Brian joined my Orion Hunter band back in the 80s, and he and I have been working together since then. Uh, Tim Archibald, the bass player, joined my band RTZ, and he and I have been working together since since those times. So, you know, there's a whole whole lot of history there. And, you know, this newest record, you know, I was kind of looking back to my, uh, my rock and roll roots before Boston, you know, what I was listening to, like in the early 70s, late 60s. And that's kind of the vibe we were looking for on, on this record. And uh, I think we really, uh, really nailed it. But, uh, you know, I was a huge uh, uh, James Gant fan, loved, loved that stuff. And uh, like really deep purple, that kind of stuff. It has that that kind of vibe to it and uh, people seem to really be uh, really be enjoying it in fact we we did a, a show uh, two weekends ago here in uh, uh new hampshire at the uh, hampton casino and i was awarded the uh new england music hall of fame award this year so uh, that was uh that was a nice I, I don't know how they picked me out of all the great positions in the northeast but uh I really appreciated that. It's nice to know that you know people are paying attention and and so this stuff. So. A terrific honor, indeed, absolutely great honor. And if uh, people want to keep up to date with what you're doing, Barry, what's the best way to do that? Uh, we have a website, BarryGoodrosEngineRoom.com. They can go there and uh, sample the music and see uh, what live shows we're, we're doing. I also have uh, GaryGoodrose.com. Uh, Although I keep up with the Angel one more than the, the, the very good one, but uh, you can go to either of those and get an idea of the music and where we are and what's going on with the band. And you know, we uh, post videos of the shows and, and pictures and so forth. So uh, yeah, go check it out. Fantastic stuff! Fantastic stuff. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you, Barry. Uh, I'll leave you off to enjoy your lovely surroundings that you're in right now, and uh, I wish you best of luck for everything in the future. Yeah, it was fun. Thank you. The brilliant Barry Goodrow there. Please give a listen to his new work with Barry Goodrow's Engine Room. You can find the music on all the usual places. And of course, if you get a chance to catch them live, then please get tickets and head along for a great night. But now it's time for the top fives. And this week, we're going to do the top five songs from Boston, of course. But first, let's recap on last week's selection, which was top five Led Zeppelin songs. I went with Immigrant Song at one, Ramble On at two, Stay Away at three, What Is and What Should Never Be at four. And babe, I'm going to leave you at five. Some of your thoughts on this list. Well, we'll start with Kevin Williams on Twitter. He had Travelling Riverside Blues as his number one, with a shout for Over the Hills and Far Away. Ramble On seemed to be a big favourite, as included in many lists, including Patrick O'Brien's Derek Ward's and Abby Angel's. Abby's list was topped by Fool in the Rain and also included Hots On for Nowhere. Derek Ward had Cashmere at the top, which was on Don Tomaski's list as well, who put Hot Dog forward. No one else had mentioned that one, so it's nice to see. Uh, In My Time of Dying, the epic 11-minute track from uh, Physical Graffiti was included by Patrick O'Brien and Joey Micho, who had the classic Dazed and Confused at number one on his list. As ever, a big thanks to everyone who reached out during the week with their suggestions and their thoughts on my list. I always love to see what your thoughts are on these incredible bands. But back to Boston then. Here's my selection then this week of my personal favourite songs from the band Boston, according to Vintage Rock Pod. 
At five is a song from their second album. It's a lot of fun right down to the hand claps accompanying the big power chords in the chorus. And number five is Feeling Satisfied. At four is a track from their debut album, another fun one charting their love of rock and playing music. And number four is Rock and Roll Band. At three is a title track from their second album. It's built around another great guitar riff, and it's got a fantastic chorus. At three is Don't Look Back. At number two is a track that opens with an acoustic set of chords before hitting us with the familiar electric guitar chords. It's another upbeat track, one of the earliest ones from the demo days. And number two is Peace of Mind. And at number one is the classic. It's hard to argue with this one, really. It's a staple on rock radio the world over, one of the most iconic rock riffs around and one of the biggest hits of all time. The number one song from Boston, according to Vintage Rock Pod, is, of course, More Than A Feeling. And there you go, my top five songs from Boston. As always, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Email me, vintagerockpod at gmail.com or find me on the social media channels. Just search for Vintage Rock Pod on all the usual sites, you know, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, that sort of thing, and you'll find me on all of those. Come say hello, let me know what your selections are, and you'll get a mention on next Monday's big interview show. Now remember, if you're not listening to this episode on Vintage Rock Pod's feed, then please do search for it on your podcast app so you don't miss any of the episodes. There's 30 plus every single month, everything for the classic rock fan, really. So please do check out Vintage Rock Pod and subscribe on the Vintage Rock Pod feed. Oh, and on the old YouTube channel as well. Check out Vintage Rock Pod on there. Well, that's it for me this week on this week's big interview show. Thanks again for listening. I'll be back tomorrow with another This Day Rocks. So remember, if you come across anyone who isn't a fan of rock, just tell them my music is better than yours. Take care. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. 
That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 